0: I would invite you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And let's read verses 7 through 11 together. And then pause while I ask for God's help. The Apostle John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. I want to retranslate verse 8 for you a little bit. The one who does not habitually practice love does not now know, nor did he ever know God. For God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Jesus, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the privilege that we have to look into it this morning. Thank You, Lord, for the tremendous work that You have raised up here at Valley Bible Church. And the legacy that it has had not only within its walls here, But even beyond its walls, Lord, I, as I mentioned last time I was here, I get to minister in a seminary that um, was started in connection with a church that was planted by Valley Bible Church 30 years ago. Lord, what a privilege. What a privilege it is for me to be here. But Lord, I pray that as tremendous as this... um, as this honor is for me to be here, that you would just hide me behind your word. Because it's not the preacher, it's the word of God that's the issue here this morning. Would the Holy Spirit be our teacher? And Lord, would you just help me? I need your help. I need your strength to be able to preach and teach this in a way that would honor and glorify your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the years before the communists took over China, In 1949 the country was ruled over by a man by the name of chiang kai-shek i think i said that right Uh, and during most of chiang kai-shek's rule in china uh, christians were very horribly persecuted which was odd because chiang kai-shek's wife was a believer and one day chiang kai-shek approached his wife and said dear i don't understand these christians We've persecuted them, we've taken away their jobs, In some cases we put them in jail, and in a few cases we've even taken their lives. And yet I've never seen one of them retaliate against their persecutors. Instead, whenever they can render a service for China, they do so and gladly. What is there that's different about them? And his wife looked him square in the eye and said they do that because they are Christians because the love of God has been perfected in them, which actually comes right out of the next verse in this passage. And it was on the basis of that testimony that Chiang Kai-shek himself reputedly bowed the knee and trusted in Jesus Christ for his salvation. You see, love has always been the hallmark of Christianity before the watching and searching eyes of a lost and dying world. Wasn't it Jesus himself? who said in John thirteen thirty five that by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you what? If you love one another. Jesus also said in Matthew 22 that the two greatest commands are this, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. But the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourselves with one thread that pulls both those two greatest commands together is love. And so it would not be surprising to come to this little epistle written by one who has come to be known to us as the apostle of love, the apostle John, to find that this epistle gives us a tremendous emphasis on love. The word itself appears some 51 times in the course of five chapters. Just a little over 100 verses in this epistle. Roughly one every two verses, you're going to find the word love used. Again, I suggest that that doesn't surprise me given Jesus' own emphasis and stress on love. And even Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, who gives his inspired description of love and ends and basically says, begins the chapter by saying, Without love, you can do nothing. And ends the chapter by saying, And now abides faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So it doesn't surprise me that John would have this emphasis. But what I find rather surprising is the man whom God chose to write the words that we just read under inspiration. Because John was not always known as the apostle of love. You remember in the Gospels, he had another nickname. Anybody remember what that was? Yeah, it, it, it comes to us in English as Son of Thunder, as Bo Nerge, Son of Thunder, which meant that John was always this far from losing his temper. It was shorter than a mosquito's hiccup. I mean, he would fly off the handle at anything. And there's an interesting account of this. We won't turn there, but I would just have you write it down. In Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 51 to 56. John and Jesus and some of the disciples were coming from a city in Samaria that had rejected Jesus' ministry. And you can see John's face getting all red, and he says to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah did? You know, I've got to quote Elijah to make his request biblical, <laughs> suggestion biblical. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah did and nuke these guys, Canham's revised paraphrase. <laughs> now, I don't think you've ever... you you know, have you ever prayed something like that or wanted to pray something like that? You know, God, they just don't see that you're in control. Give them lockjaw and nausea at the same time so they see who's really in charge. Maybe you haven't come up with quite something that creative, but you have thought the sentiment. And Jesus looked at John and says, John, you don't know what you're asking. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And this is a man who did not come by love naturally. This was a man who was transformed by love through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now, roughly 60 years after that event that I had just uh, recounted for you, john the john the apostle takes up his pen and writes these words that we have just read there are three major passages within first john that deal with this particular topic john's already covered it in chapter 2 verses 7 through 11 and in a lengthier passage in 3 11 through 18 this is the longest one we actually just read the first five verses but john's discussion on this in chapter 4 actually extends all the way to the end of the chapter we just uh, only have time this morning to focus on the first five verses or so and i've chosen this particular passage because it puts in capsule form everything that john has been trying to develop as he develops this issue of love throughout his first epistle and so i want to uh, follow our thinking this morning by raising and answering three questions that I think John deals with in these verses. Number one, number one would be the priority of love. And that frankly is where we're probably gonna end up spending most of our time this morning. Why is love a priority? Why does Jesus make this the hallmark, as it were, of Christianity? That's verses seven and eight. But we can talk all we want about why love is important, but we better understand what love is before we can really understand why it's important. And so John gives us a picture of what love is in verses nine and 10. And in a word, John's picture of love is the cross. That's verses nine and 10. John can never define love, he can never think about love, he can never speak about love without meditating back on the very thing that transformed him from a son of thunder to the apostle of love, and that would be the cross of Jesus Christ. That's verses 9 and 10. So after we've seen the priority of love, why love is important, number two, the picture of love, what it looks like, number three, verse 11, we have the practice of love. Now that we know why it's important and what it looks like, John would say, now put it into practice, verse 11. So that's going to be where we're going to be going this morning. And I want to begin with the priority of love. The priority of love in verses 7 and 8. I choose the word priority, Deliberately because it seems that in so many of our churches love takes a back seat to everything else including preaching programs promotions, whatever But love is a priority I alluded to earlier first Corinthians chapter 13 It's very interesting if you read those verses in verses 1 through 3 Paul begins by talking about talking to a church that had all the gifts who even bragged in the fact that they had all the gifts and you, if you go with me to 1 Corinthians 13 for just a moment, it's interesting the wording that Paul uses in, um, in these verses. 1 Corinthians 13, when he uh, opens the chapter, by saying, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, he said, I am become as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Actually, I wanted to end there. Let me begin with verse 2, because John says, or Paul says rather, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, the prophecies, knowledge, faith, get, uh, uh, mysteries, I know mysteries, I have all these things, and yet I do not have love. I am nothing. That's an accounting term. It means you add up to a big fat zero. There is no benefit. And even... Gifts that God gave that were intended to build up the body that were intended to edify that were intended to strengthen If they are used apart from love Paul says they're absolutely profitless But then I go back to verse 1 the clanging gong and a clashing cymbal. Let's say that by way of illustration that we decided decided to fire everybody who was up here Singing leading us in worship this morning not that I'm ever suggesting that we do that They did a wonderful job in leading us before the throne, but let's say we replace them was somebody up here hanging onto a trash can lid with a stick. And they, in person, spent the next 45 minutes beating on the trash can, different cadences, you know, uh, you know different songs, different tunes and whatever, for 45 minutes straight. If any of you are still here, at the end of the time, you would be coming up here and tempted to break several of the Ten Commandments. Because that would not only be not edifying, it would be positively what? Annoying, which is not a positive thing, right? So in verse 2, it's a big zero, but in verse 1, actually gifts exercised apart from love are is a negative thing. Love is absolutely important so that Paul, after giving his great description of love in verses 4 through 8, ends with this discussion in verse 13, now abides faith. Hope and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I took a course with D.A. Carson uh, last summer, audited a course in Reformed Seminary back in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and he spoke about this passage and made a very interesting and I think pretty profound comment. Why is love the greatest? Because it's the only one of the three that God himself exercises. Stop and think about it. God doesn't have faith. God doesn't have hope. He's the author of both. But he does have love. And he exercises his love. So Paul, years earlier, stressed the importance of love. But John in this passage gives us three reasons why love must be a priority in the life of any believer, and back in 1 John chapter 4. Number one, love is a priority because of God's command. Love is a priority because of God's command. And you hopefully have your found your notes there in your, your bulletin and you can follow along with me as we, as we uh, develop this a little bit. Love is a priority because of God's command. Verse 7 opens up very simply by saying, Beloved, let us love one another. That's a command. And you would think that anything that God commands once will hold authority enough in our lives so that we would live by it. I mean, how many times does God have to command something for us in order for it to be binding? Once. But are you aware that this command doesn't appear just once? It appears no less than 15 times in the New Testament. Five of them in 1 John itself. And it isn't just... John who commands that we love one another. Of course, Jesus himself commanded it as the greatest commandment, uh, and the second greatest commandment. Uh, Paul commanded it repeatedly. Peter commanded it. The writer of Hebrews commanded it. Non, the list goes that love is a command. And therefore, because of that, it needs to be a priority in our lives as believers. But John even gets more to the point when he states that love is not only a priority because of God's command, but secondly, because of our conversion. And he states this in two ways. He states it first positively at the end of verse 7 when he says, and everyone who loves is born of God, has been born of God, and demonstrates that by their ongoing knowledge of God. They have been born of God and they know God, verse 7. Negatively, And this is where it gets very important for us to pay close attention to what John is saying. He said it's not just that love is the positive mark of a believer, verse to the end of verse 7. It is that the absence of it indicates what? That you have never truly trusted in Christ for salvation. Verse 8 opens, and there's an interesting interplay between the tenses here, and I won't go into all the details uh, except to say that the, there is a present tense verb connected with the word love, but there is an aorist tense verb connected with the word know in verse 8. And so the, the verse reads like I translated it earlier when we were reading the Scripture. The one who does not habitually as a practice love doesn't merely say that he isn't knowing God, which would be the present tense it means that he never even came to know god he never knew god that's what verse john 4 8 the first part is saying you see love is the hallmark of christianity if you if there is love again as the bible defines love then it's evidence that a person has been born again if there is not love it's evidence that a person has never been born again The presence of love demonstrates the presence of life. The absence of love demonstrates the absence of life. And it's important that we understand this because we put so many other criteria up for determining whether we are true believers. But we ignore that life principle sometimes that comes um, only from a love flows out of a regenerated heart. I heard a preacher, and I'm going to use an illustration that um, in some ways makes a different point, but I think connects up with this one. I heard a preacher say one time, if you see a body without a head, it's dead. And you know, some of you might be thinking, well, duh. That's true. You know, A body without a head is dead. Yeah, that seems to be true until you see things that apparently contradict that. I'll give you an illustration. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York, about 10 miles from the middle of nowhere. Grew up in a little town. Uh, Actually, I wasn't even in the town. I lived about a mile above the town, on the hill above the town, maybe two miles above it. The town was about 200 people. We had a sign, you know, you are now entering and you are now leaving on the same signpost. You know, somebody would plug in their razor and the traffic light would dim if we had a traffic light. You know, the village idiot and the mayor were the same guy. I mean, it was just one of those towns. And uh, so sometimes I have a little bit of fun explaining to my city friends who might not know otherwise that when they go to a store, a grocery store, and buy a chicken to take home to cook up, that the chicken didn't necessarily grow neatly wrapped in plastic like that. There was a certain amount of violence that had to take place to get that chicken into the package. And I stand here as a self-confessed purveyor of the violence because we raised chickens on that uh, country, in in the country. we We lived on 72 acres, it wouldn't have been a farm, but we did raise our own chickens and I'm here to tell you that chickens are second only to woodchucks as the stupidest animal on the face of the earth. They're morons. And uh, when you got moronic chickens and four kids who have nothing else to do, <laughs> except, well, torment chickens, we had a lot of fun with those chickens. And so we would sneak down in the middle of the night. And they, you know, they were slept in this hen, ho- hen house that we had. And uh, we would just sneak in there. You know, other people did cow tipping. Anybody ever hear of cow tipping? You know, some of my friends who actually were around cows did that. Uh, We didn't have a cow. So we did the next best thing is we stacked chickens. So we'd sneak down. They're all asleep. And I mean, when they're asleep, they're in a coma. So we would just pick them off and start stacking them on top of each other. And our goal was to see how high we could get the stack before the ones in the bottoms woke up. So there were four across, so we would just start choot, 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 and build our way up. And about, we we usually could count on about five rows. When we started the fifth row, the chicken on the bottom would be like, you know, he's kind of working around trying to get her bearing, not realizing that part of the reason she's a little bit uncomfortable is she's got four chickens on her back right about that point. (laughs) And of course, the second one is even more having fun because what's under the chicken is moving and three chickens above it are moving so the second chicken is starting to do this and the third chicken is break dancing and then you just started off with a nice little chicken war we're all sitting there (laughs) because we thought that was pretty funny but the day came when we had to go and butcher those chickens and my dad had a stump with a couple uh nails and i you know i still had a hard time doing this, even though I thought chickens were morons. But I carried the chickens, and my dad would put the head on the stump and remove the head from the body. Now, the next, for the next three minutes, that chicken was more active than it had been in its full life. I mean, it would be running everywhere. I mean, the head's still there, but the chicken's running off into the bushes. I had to go into the bushes and drag some chickens out. Would pull the chicken out, leave it on the ground, the chicken would get up and run around again for three minutes. Now to the untrained observer, he would look at that and say, that's a live chicken. But remember, a body without a head is dead. The chicken was just too much of a moron to realize it. And isn't it true that so often in our professed Christian lives, we do an awful lot of activity just to prove to the rest of the world and to each other that we're not really dead? Because the kind of works, the kind of good works that Jesus talks about that are, and that James and other uh, biblical writers talk about that are the mark of a true believer are ones that grow out of love, are not the kind of thing that substitute for love. Because, again, love is the hallmark of Christianity. Isn't this what Mary and Martha had to learn, particularly Martha? Mary's chosen the better thing, Luke chapter 10, because she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Isn't this what Peter learned in that great restoration passage in John 21, when Jesus asked Peter three times what? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Okay, Peter, feed my sheep. And Jesus did this, three times. I can imagine about the third time, of course, Peter in the passage gets a little agitated by that point. And if I were Jesus, I'd be saying, now, Peter, I'm asking this for the third time. Do you have any idea why I'm asking you this three times? Can you think of anything you did recently? Three times? I would just really work it in there. But Jesus is not me, praise God, right? (laughs) You know, Peter denied the Lord three times. Jesus, in his mercy and his grace and his love, gives Peter the opportunity to affirm his love for Christ three times. But for our purposes, I want you to notice the order. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Jesus said what? Feed my sheep. Notice the order. Love first. Service second. Ministry second and ministry as an outflow of love. That's why John places such an emphasis on this thing, because unless you have the issue of salvation and regeneration first in place, there's no way in the world that you're going to properly love. You're going to be a son of thunder, or some other thing that's anti-love. But John stresses the utter importance of love. I was going to use this illustration. I'm going to uh, leave it out for a little bit of time save a little bit of time this morning, but I would commend you Francis Schaefer, Who was a, a, an apologist who? Uh, ministered uh, pr- primarily in Europe with bringing the gospel to the intellectual community during the uh, latter part of the 20 uh, the mid to the latter part of the 20th century Francis Schaeffer uh, Was a very effective apologist but toward the end of his life. He wrote a book called the mark of the Christian and which he based it on two verses. Maybe I will use part of this illustration. John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. And he said in that ver- that verse, in that verse, Jesus gives the world the right to determine whether we are believers based on whether they can observe love. The world isn't equipped to determine whether we have sound doctrine or any of the other things that we legitimately appeal to as marks of a true believer the world isn't equipped to discern any of that they can see genuine love by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another but then john 17 jesus prays five times the believers would be one and he gives a reason for it in john 17 21 and 22 when he prays that they may be one in order that the world may know that God had sent Christ. That's the Gospel. So it isn't just whether our profession to be, fa- to be a believer would be valid. Jesus' Jesus's words in John 21 indicate that unless the world sees observable love and unity amongst believers, they will conclude our gospel is false they will refuse to believe that god had sent christ they will refuse to believe that god had loved them believers just as he loved christ john 17 21. that's scary because the lack of love amongst professing believers actually gives ammunition to the world to reject the gospel now that ammunition isn't going to help them on judgment day When they stand before the Lord, the excuse, well, I didn't become a Christian because so-and-so didn't observe love is not going to carry any weight. But there is a certain responsibility that will come to bear on those whose lack of love promoted that. Jesus said, again, or John says here, he that does not love does not now know, nor did he ever know God. You remember in Matthew 7? Toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said that many would come unto him in that day and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these great and wonderful things in your name? Remember what Jesus says? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I what? Never knew knew you. Same tense, same verb that's used in 1 John 4, 8. There will be some people... Who profess the name of Christ, even come from solid Bible believing churches, perhaps even can sign off on an orthodox doctrinal statement. But I fear we'll hear those words because they've never been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love is a priority, number one, because of God's command, number two, because of our conversion. And the thing that's so striking about this, and this is what saddens and amazes me at the same time, is that some in the professing church would actually downplay love or minimize it. I remember when the Lord, uh, this, is, this is one of my lifelong sermons. The Lord first laid this on my heart over 20 years ago when I was a college student. That kind of dates me a little bit. But I remember talking with a fellow student about uh, preaching this passage, and 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 he looked at me and said, "What do you want to preach on love for?" That just leads to compromise. And at the same time, I was talking with another friend who had himself come to know the Lord. He was an older uh, older student, uh, but he had come to know the Lord in his uh, mid 20s when he was uh, in uh, in uh, the Midwest somewhere and had linked up with a church. And the pastor of this church, um, and it was a professing fundamentalist church, but the pastor of the church, and I'm not going to try to scream it because I need to save my voice for, you know, the 11 o'clock, but he was a screamer. And this guy got up in the pulpit, and this was typical of what he would do, but he got up in the pulpit and said, we don't want to be known as a loving church in this community. That stuff is for sissies and for wimps. And to my friend's credit, he soon left that church and went to one where the pastor was a Christian. Because no one, no one, and hear me please, no one who has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ could ever make such an idiotic statement. Because John says, the one who does not love does not now know, nor did he ever know God. And this was a hallmark of the early church. In the early second century, when the church was persecuted, I think it was Pliny the Elder was one of the uh, early governors who wrote to the Roman emperor to get advice about what to do about the Christians that were in his realm, because Christianity was illegal at that point. And in the course of his discussion with the emperor, letters that went back and forth between him and the emperor, he made this comment, oh, how they love one another. He just was blown away by the love that he observed amongst these believers. In the third century, there was a plague that spread through the Roman Empire like wildfire that that cut down everybody, including many of the persecutors of Christianity. And so the early believers, or the third century believers, at a time when Christianity was still illegal, they banded themselves together into a group known as the Parabolani and went about caring for the very people who who had been taking their lives away. Truly, Christians were known for their love, one for another. I would suggest to you that a gospel without love is no gospel. That Christianity without love is not Christianity. It is a false form of Christianity. It's no coincidence that John goes, launches into discussion right after warning his readers about the antichrists that would be coming, the false teachers that would be coming, and he ends that discussion in verse six by saying, um, you know, whoever is of God hears us. Whoever is not of God does not hear us. This is how we know the spirit of truth versus the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. The contextual connection is unavoidable. A gospel without love is no gospel. But John gives us a third reason why love needs to be a priority, not only because of God's command, and not only because of our conversion, but number three, because of God's character. He ends verse 8 by very simply saying, for God is love. God is love. This is the third of four God is statements that you'll find in John's writings. In John chapter 4, he says, God is love. Spirit, This quoting Jesus actually in that passage. God is spirit and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. First John chapter one and verse five, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, which means that God in his nature is impeccably holy. There is nothing that God can do that it would be sinful. He is utterly incapable of sinning because his very character, his nature, his essence Is that of holiness there are certain things that God cannot do because of his holiness he cannot lie for example Hebrews 6 tells us that and other passages but here John says and actually it's not once but twice because you'll find it again repeated in verse 16 of the same chapter that God is love what John is saying is that God by his very character by his very nature by his very essence is love he cannot help but loving any more than he can help but being holy. It is part of his character, his nature, his essence to be that. And this is not something that John came up with on his own. In fact, you will find this repeated in the scripture, Jeremiah 31.3, just to give you a couple of examples. Uh, the Lord of old has appeared unto me saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Deuteronomy chapter six or seven, I think, it, um, I think it's chapter seven. Uh, Moses uh, speaks, quoting God to the nation of Israel and says that the Lord did not set his love upon you because you were greater or better than the other nations, but the Lord loved you because he loved you. Does God love us? Yes. Why does he love us? Because he loves us. The answer to why God loves us does not rest in something in us. It is something that is unique to the character of God himself. Because if it were up to us, all we would ever do is hate him. In fact, it was when we hated him that he demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don't try to find the initiative for any of the things that we're talking about in us. It's God and it's not because it's something that God just couldn't live without us Not that at all God lived without us long before we were created It's because God in his very character and his nature and his essence loves This is a truth that has been very difficult for some of God's choicest servants to get a hold of one of them At the beginning of his ministry was DL Moody Many of you have heard of D.L. Moody. Dwight L. Moody was a famous American evangelist in the second half of the 19th century. And Moody's sermons um, at the beginning of his ministry were very, very harsh, were very, very severe, but very powerful in their own way. And one time, Moody was over in England preaching a series of meetings, and after he preached one, uh, one sermon, a young, green, Irish evangelist by the name of Henry Morehouse, barely 20 years old, approached Moody after one of his sermons and said, Mr. Moody, I'm starting an evangelism myself, and one of these days, I'm going to get to America, and when I do, I would like to preach in your church. Now, these were the days before you could practically fax yourself across the ocean. You know, that took a, took a sea voyage of several months, so, so Moody was like, yeah, I'll never see the guy again. Yeah, sure, if you get to America, you can preach at my church. You know, just kind of, and promptly forgot about it. Until six months later, Moody came into his office one Monday morning, and there was a telegram opened upon his desk by his secretary, and the telegram read, Dear Mr. Moody, have docked in New York. will be in Chicago on Wednesday. I want to preach at your church. Signed, Morehouse. And Moody's like, I remember talking to this guy, and I did kind of give him my words, so... Uh, Moody was actually going to be gone that week, preaching in another uh, another venue. And so he called his leadership together at the church. At that time, Moody, what, what became known as Moody Church in Chicago held services every night of the week. And so he called his leadership together, and he said, um, I'll tell you what, we have uh, this guy coming in. Put, put him on Wednesday night. And if he's any good, you can have him back Thursday. And, uh, you know, just... Use your own discretion. I'm out of here. So Moody left to to do his his meetings. And that Wednesday night, Morehouse got up and said, Ladies and gentlemen, I've asked the Lord what he would have me to preach to you tonight, and I can't get away from this verse. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he spent the next 45 minutes to an hour, beginning with Genesis and going all through, all through Revelation, showing example after example after example of how God demonstrated his love. People were amazed. The deacons were impressed, and so they said, we've got to get this guy on again. The next night, Morehouse says, "The Lord, I've asked the Lord what it would have me to preach to you tonight, and I just can't get away from this verse. Quoted John 3.16 again and went through the Bible giving different examples of how God demonstrated his love. Friday night, same thing. Saturday morning, D.L. Moody walked into his house, his wife's sitting there at the breakfast table, and he says to her kind of sarcastically, well, how'd the new guy do? And she looked at him and she said, you ought to listen to him. You might just get religion. <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean by that? And she said, for years you've been preaching about how much God hates sin and must judge sin. And while all that is true, and it is true, she said, while all that is true, she said, for the last three nights, we've heard this man unfold to us the love of God in such a way we've never heard before. And so that night, Moody sat in his own congregation while Morehouse, for the fourth night in a row, preached from John 3.16. Moody was later to say that that, the sentence that we have in our Bibles, 1 John 4, 8, was the most important sentence the Bible contained. And it transformed his life and his ministry from that day on. Have you met the God of love? If not, you've not met the God of the Bible. Love is a priority because of God's command, our conversion, and God's character. But what does love look like? And my time is rapidly running out, so I'm going to have to go through this much more quickly than I would like to. But it's very, very important that we understand what love is that John is talking about because we can have all sorts of wacky, incomplete, and sometimes erroneous definitions of what love is, right? And so it's very important that we take a look at the meaning of love, love pictured in its meaning. And we could do a number of things to do this, We could go back to 1 Corinthians 13 and look at all those characteristics that Paul lists, which is more of a description of love than a definition of love. But I want to do something a little bit differently this morning. I want to do what's called the first mention principle of Bible study. And what this principle basically states is that the first time that a word appears in the Bible, the context in which it appears often... Indicates the way in which that word will be used throughout the rest of the Bible Now this doesn't work in every case, but it does work in a number of cases And I find it fascinating that the first time that you have the word love appearing in the Bible It doesn't speak of romantic love Either a man's love for a woman or a woman's love for a man. In fact, it doesn't even speak of a man's love for God The first time the word love appears in the Bible, it speaks of a father's love for his son. Genesis 22, you have God appearing to Abraham and saying, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and take him and offer him upon a place that I will tell you of. Two things I want you to notice about the context most of you probably know what's going on in Genesis 22 so I'll appeal to your your knowledge or your memory for these two things number one the first time love appears it speaks of a father's love for his son but number two it speaks of that father's love for someone that was so great that he was willing to what sacrifice Sacrifice the son now this this is interesting in and of itself But it becomes even more interesting when you realize that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 points back to that very incident And appeals to it as a type of Christ his resurrection And so if we zoom ahead to the beginning of the New Testament And you take the four Gospels and place them side by side and see where the first occurrence of the word love is in Matthew's Gospel you have God speaking from heaven once again But this time, he's speaking of his love for his own son. The baptism of Jesus, remember this? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Open to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 11, I think it is. First occurrence, same thing. Luke's Gospel, first occurrence, same thing. But then, you come to the Gospel of John. Where the word love is used more times than in all the other four gospels put to, three gospels put together, and where the, Jesus is spoken of as God's son more times than in all three other gospels put together, and where do you think the first occurrence of love is in John's gospel? Yet, yeah, where else could it be but John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his one and only son. Do you see the picture? Three times, God shouts from heaven his love for his Son. And then you come to John's Gospel and find that he loved us so much that he was willing to sacrifice the Son. And that's love pictured in its meaning as a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. And this is exactly what John gets back to in verses 9 and 10. He cannot speak of love without going to the gospel, to the cross of Jesus Christ. I earlier said that a gospel without love is not a gospel, right? In verses 9 and 10, we see that love without the gospel is not what? Love. Because the only way we can understand it is by looking at what Jesus did for us. And so we go back to verse 9. In this, by this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might might live through him. This is the incarnation of Jesus. God didn't just send Jesus or send another angel or send another man. He sent the God man, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, verse 9. Love pictured in its manifestation in the son. If you want to see what love looks like in embodied in personal form, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. The Bible says, "Greater love has no man than this" than that a man laid down his life for his friends. Jesus won one beyond even that. He laid down his life for his enemies. That's love. That's love, the kind of which the world has never known. And so verse 10, we see that love is pictured in its mission to save us. And this was, uh, and this is love, verse 10. And notice this, not that we loved God can't start with us. The initiative for love would never start with us. It never has started with us. It is not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means satisfaction of wrath. God is angry with the wicked every day, the Bible says. Our sins have not only separated us from God, Isaiah chapter 59, but our sins have actually placed us under the wrath of God. Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 develop this. The entire human race, because the entire human race has sinned, they have placed themselves under the wrath of God. But now, verse 21 of Romans chapter three, the righteousness of God apart from the law has been revealed, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all those who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has publicly set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. The propitiatory work of Christ is the answer to the wrath of God. And Jesus was that. It's almost like somebody asks Jesus, How much do you love me? And he says, I love you this much. And he stretched out his arms and he died for us. There's an old hymn that I don't often hear sung anymore, but captures it powerfully a hymn called Ivory Palaces. And the chorus goes, out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe. Only His great, unfailing love made my Savior go." See, that's love. That's the picture of love. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, verse 11. Now that we see the priority of love and the picture of love, verse 11, very simply, Draws us back together with the practice of love. John says, beloved, if God so loved us, if if that's how the cross demonstrated God's love for us, what other response could we have but to love one another? The practice of love. It's no coincidence that God used the early church who were characterized by love for one another to turn the ancient world upside down the apostle john who some 60 years roughly before he wrote these words had seen repeatedly on display jesus christ demonstrate this love coming to its culmination in the cross A cross that was vindicated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John 13 tells us that Jesus loved his disciples until the end. He has loved us, as we saw in Jeremiah 31, with an everlasting love. He has promised never to leave us nor to forsake us, but to be with us even unto the consummation of the age. These were the truths that transformed and motivated the early believers. There's a story and I'll close with this, that comes out of early church history of the Apostle John's last sermon. Sometime after he wrote this epistle, he was sent into exile in the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. During that time, extremely tortured. Already an old man, probably in his 90s by that point. And then John was released from that and comes back To spend his last days at the church at ephesus the church that he labored in founded by the apostle paul but john labored in for the last 30 years of his life and at this stage of his life john could no longer see he could no longer walk and he had to be carried to church every week but out of deference to him and of love for the last of the living apostles the church always asked him to get up to preach and on this particular lord's day this was The last time that John would speak, and everybody knew it in the church because he was rapidly approaching the end of his life. And there was weeping in the congregation, and John was carried up and and set in the midst of the people. And he looks out over the congregation with eyes that cannot see and says, How dark it is! I cannot seem to see the faces of my flock. Is that the sea? That murmurs so or is it weeping hush my little children God so loved the world he gave his only son so love one another love God and love men I submit to you that no sermon ever preached has been more important will you love one another. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for using John to give these words to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God, would you help us? Only by your grace can we apply this. And Lord, I pray that if there's any here that have never trusted in you for salvation, that you would open their eyes, that you would grant them the faith to believe. Thank you. Thank you again for the opportunity to be with your people. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.